0: Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 13 of UCC's Talking Pictures podcast. I am your host Shannon and as usual, I hope all of you had a very lovely week. Major shout out to Ana Hardwick as well for coming on last episode and just being super class to talk to. Anyways, jumping straight into today's episode, the format is going to return once again to only me doing the episode. And I think this episode is going to be a bit unusual, I'm not sure how to phrase it, because it's the most niche topic I've done yet. Because today I am discussing a film called Perfect Blue by Satoshi Khan, who was a Japanese director. And the thing is, I don't think many of the people listening to this will have seen or heard of it. It would be popular in the indie film circuit or the cinephile circuit, I have no idea what you call it, film bros, whatever... But I think if I went out into the streets of Cork and I asked 100 people had they seen this film, maybe five of them would say yes, and I feel like I'm still overestimating there. And you might be wondering, okay, why did you pick such random film to focus on? Also, because it's anime, because anime is something that tends to get a bad rap among certain people. Like, I don't know the amount of times I've had to disclose an anime film it isn't just for children, Now, this one definitely isn't for children, but even films like Puss in Boots, Kung Fu Panda 2, whenever I'm selling them to anyone else, I have to be like, you know, it's actually good. I swear it's not just for eight-year-olds or something. But Perfect Blue is definitely different from most animated films because it is a psychological horror film and it is definitely not aimed at children once again. In fact, I don't even think this is a fun situation where both adults and children can watch it. It's about a woman who is stalked by an obsessive fan and there's assault and there's murder and there is psychosis. But what is really interesting about this film and why I picked it for today's episode is because it basically predicted the rise of what we know as stan culture nearly two decades later. Stalkers, mental illness, even this whole idea that celebrities have to live up to certain standards that are sometimes impossible to and are also quite disingenuous for the person themselves. This film actually ended up being so influential, even though I suppose not many Western countries would have seen it, it did actually leak into the mainstream. There are replica shots of it in Requiem for a Dream, and Black Swan, which I think most people would be familiar with, is considered to be very, very heavily inspired by Perfect Blue. Emphasis on the heavily, because there's a whole other story there about plagiarism, but I will go into that at the end. Anyways, before diving into everything I want to discuss today, I'm just going to give you a quick backstory about the film. So, initially, Perfect Blue wasn't meant to be an animated film. It was meant to be a live-action film before it was brought into animation, and Khan was then asked to be involved after directing episodes of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. It was based on the novel Perfect Blue, complete metamorphosis by... Yoshikazu Takuchi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and I also don't think I'll ever read that book, it doesn't have a Wikipedia. But Khan was essentially allowed to change up the script completely, as long as he kept three main things. So the main girl was a J-pop idol, she had a stalker, and it would be a horror film. Now in the hands of someone else, it might have just been a normal horror film about a girl who is stalked by this crazy guy, goes through a bunch of stuff, But Khan decided, instead of focusing on the stalker and his murderous tendencies, to focus on the idols and their struggles as she deals with being stalked. This allowed for a much broader narrative where he could just dive into her mental health and construct a storyline for her which borders between the real and imaginary and her own personal life and her public life. So to explain the plot of Perfect Blue, Mima, her lead character, is a popular but B-list J-pop idol who has decided to leave her group Cham to pursue a career as an actress. Immediately, this is met with uproar, especially as Mima transitions into more adult, darker roles, which are the complete opposite from her innocent girl-next-door image. As the film progresses, people in Mima's vicinity begin to die, and she begins to hallucinate this vision of the real Mima, the old Mima, who criticises her decision to go into acting and tries to convince her to become a J-pop idol again. Now, there is so much I could unpack in this film. But I won't go into today because there's two main things I want to focus on. First of all is Mima's experience in the industry as a woman, and secondly, the idolization by her stalker. Now, just to be clear, as I said earlier, this film is very, very graphic and is not something I would encourage you to view unless you have a strong stomach. I also am just going to warn before anyone starts listening. This film does deal with rather heavy topics. Including rape and sexual assault. So, I wouldn't recommend listening if these are topics that you personally feel um, triggered by. And there's also going to be a lot of spiders. So, don't listen to this unless you've seen the film or unless you don't mind hearing about the film. When Mima leaves Cham, she's catapulted into an industry which basically asks her to do continuously gratuitous things. Coming from a pre existing career as a pop idol, Mima has a lot more ground to make up of in terms of people taking her seriously because most people aren't able to separate her from her idol image and her actor image. So after only receiving one line in this big television show, Mima has a chance to actually upgrade her role but the only way she can do this is if she's willing to rape scene. This is where the film kind of starts to become a lot more apparent to what it's trying to say. So both of her managers argue with her male manager being kind of for it and her female manager being against it. They're both mainly concerned with how it'll change her image going forward because, as I mentioned earlier and will mention again and again, she has this very innocent, very clean, family-friendly image going for her. So though Mima ultimately agrees to do the role because she claims she's not actually being raped, the film explores the whole transitional image of female celebrities and how they are expected to advance their career. Mima's transformation from her squeaky clean image to one considered sexual and dirty, for the lack of a better word, actually does reflect many women's experience in the music industry. If you think of female artists such as Britney Spears, Billie Eilish, Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, all of them had to make a change in image once they hit a certain age. I am going to, I think Miley Cyrus is probably the biggest example I can think of because as most people my age would know, there was just one day where she was this beloved Disney child star, and then the next day, she was swinging naked on a wrecking ball. Now, I think that's always going to be the example of, I suppose, the wild child or the good girl gone bad, because I don't think anyone at that time was expecting it, and I remember the controversy was so huge, it didn't matter if it was for that video, if it was for the album bangers if it was for her hair, if it was for her twerking with Robin Thicke. But it just felt like a completely different person in the span of a few years. Kind of focus on Billie Eilish a bit because she's a lot newer and her case is more recent in mind. Now, if you followed Billie's career as a teenager, which I think many people did, one of Billie's sort of trademarks was that she refused to wear tight clothes and opted for baggy clothes instead. She cited the main reason for doing this was because of her own body dysmorphia, but also to avoid being sexualised as a child. Then, she turns 19, and once again, I think one of her first photo shoots, she's photographed in lingerie. Now, it ends up being her most liked picture on her Instagram by far, and Billy talks about how it was her choice. She's spoken about how much hate she received for wearing baggy clothes, people telling her that, one, she looked ugly, and two, she didn't look like a real woman. Now obviously these comments are coming from people who feel accustomed to seeing women in skimpier clothing and feeling like they have the right to tell her. But it clearly did have a major impact on her mental health. And then the second she decides to start wearing like more fitted clothes, then she got the other end of the scale with people saying she was looking for attention or that they didn't like the new belly, they wanted the old belly back. That basically she was like betraying them for years of dressing modestly. And then suddenly appearing in brand underwear. Now that's not to say that everyone feels that way. I'd say most people don't care what she wears. But there definitely was a sudden new interest. Particularly a male interest in Billy. When she started wearing clothes which showed off more of her body. Now once you notice this pattern of teenagers transitioning to adults. Primarily through sexual roles or through showing more of their body. It's really hard to unsee it. And it puts forward the question that is there this expectation of female singers or actresses to appear a certain way after eighteen? Now this is a really difficult line to toe, and I don't have a definitive answer for it because it's so hard to tell whether these are their choices that it's something that they feel empowered by, that they want to express their sexuality, but it also could be the fact that their management or whoever is control of their image says, look. If you want to be taken more seriously, or if you want to look like an adult, if you want a new audience, this requires you having to strip down. Now, I wouldn't know because obviously I'm not in Hollywood, I'm not behind the scenes, but I would be a bit skeptical when you see it happen to so many girls. They turn 18, suddenly there comes up a lot more covers where they're wearing whatever, maybe just a bra and underwear, they could be doing nude shoot And it's like, why is this happening so fast? Is there a reason for this? Natalie Portman, when she appeared on the Amateur Expert podcast, spoke about how actresses either have the option to appear hypersexual or not sexual at all. There doesn't seem to be any in between. And in the same article that I read that comment on, I saw another interesting comment which asked how many child actors have made their grand entrance as a grown-up? with a magazine showing their cleavage. And then all you have to do is look at Bailey Eilish's first cover as an adult wearing lingerie to realise that there is an element of truth to it. So drawing back to the film again, one of the key points for Mima is that Mima's access to bigger and better roles depends on how far she's willing to go to sexualise herself. Now some people might say, look, you know, this is a film, this is a once-off that there are other ways Mima could have succeeded without having to resort to playing roles involving sex, nudity or violence. But this is actually still representative of real life in the film industry. Sophie nalise who plays Shauna on Yellow Jackets, a show I would definitely recommend if you're into mysteries or lost, also cannibalism, but don't watch it because you like cannibalism, that would just be weird. She said when she started looking for mature roles at the age of 18, nearly all of them involved rape or some sort of sexual element this was 2018 this was five years ago Sophie was only 18 at the time and it's kind of mad to think that you just stop being a teenager and you're looking for more roles and some comes up to you and says look you know you can have this role but only if you do this this and that but I just think it shows that in order for women to transition from being a child actor to being a serious actor that there is specific conditions required of them compared to male actors like when I think of someone like Josh Hutcherson who was also a child actor or Zac Efron who was also coming off Disney Channel I doubt that in order to get more serious roles that they had to do a nude scene or do a rape scene and I'm specifically mentioning nudity because obviously there is a lot of sex scenes in film and television but nudity just tends to be such a big focal point for Actresses more so than actors, and do you have to think like, is there a reason there for it? You know, hopefully, things have advanced now. But Mima's situation in the film was very reflective of the nature of the film industries in 90s Japan and even fairly recent Hollywood, which we could see with the whole Weinstein episode. Like, the film was also very taboo in the sense that it addressed these subjects because no one really ever asked how comfortable women were filming these type of scenes or no one asked him did they ever feel exploited having to do so much nudity in order to get roles compared to their male counterparts where nudity wasn't really required of them now i do think this brings up the uh, argument that nudity is a normal thing but i think the response to this is that there is such a gap between how much nudity is there for male actors versus female actors that you begin to feel that it serves another purpose primarily the male gaze which describes male watchers who were just there for nudity. That's one reason season one of Game of Thrones had such a large amount of nudity, because they wanted to draw on a certain type of viewer who was pretty much only there to see a pair of tits. And they did cut it down in further seasons, probably to be more mindful, but also because they hoped that demographic, who had just shown up for nudity, was interested enough in the story that they decided to stay watching. As the film advances Mima's adult image develops further. She does a shoot for a photographer who is known specifically for getting people to strip according to Mima's bandmate. Mima ends up on a cover, which is fairly revealing to say the least but it's basically another advancement in distancing her from her pop idol image. A really interesting thing that I want to comment on Mima as a pop idol as well is despite the band being rather girly and wearing bright colours and Singing the equivalent of kids' pop, though they actually do sound quite good. Cham's fan base is predominantly male. Only men come to see their performances, only men purvey their magazines. When this shoot of Mima comes out, it's only men gathered around reading it. Despite having this whole bubblegum pop thing going for them, it seems their image is aimed at men rather than teenagers or women, which pop usually caters to. But this whole idea basically leads us into one of Mima's main antagonists in the film, her stalker, Mimania. Now, Mimania is a really creepy character from the get-go, primarily due to his distinctive appearance as he's drawn differently to every other character. So as the film progresses, we see he runs a website pretending to be Mima and recounting all of her daily activities. Now, considering that the internet was just beginning to pop off in the late 90s, Mima is unaware of this website and it isn't until she sets a computer she discovers it and eventually becomes very alarmed about how accurate it is. Now, if this film was set 20 years later, it's easy to imagine a camera being installed in Mima's room. But what I find most interesting about Mima's character is how much he detests and resents Mima's changing image and how he wants to have control of it. Once Mima starts taking on the so-called adult image, he starts to threaten and harm all those responsible for this change, be it a screenwriter or photographer, before eventually Mima herself. This film kind of flirts with the Freudian theory of the Madonna-whore complex, which suggests that in some people's eyes, women can only appear pure. I keep using this in quotation marks because I think it's such a weird word to use. Or they can appear promiscuous. Now, this is considered to be an actual condition with certain men and it suggests that they can only have romantic love or sexual love and not both and it means that while they refuse to degrade once again using this with quotation marks their partners or the woman they love with sex they hold a distaste for women who they're actually sexually attracted to and they belittle these women they can't bear to see their partner who they consider loving and pure to turn into a woman with their own sexual desires Now, once Mima adapts this latter image of her owning her sexuality, being aware of it, Mimania is unable to reconcile Mima as a friendly or loving person anymore. He is desperate for her to revert to the family-friendly, girl-next-door version of Mima, who was also an object of desire for him, but is not an object he considers to be deviant or dirty. Like I said, this is very interesting and complex because On one hand, Mima's new image is shown to cater to a new fan base, one that is still primarily male. Yet on the other end, there are people who are disgusted by her because being sexual, I think especially as a woman, is still considered a stigma by some people or in some places. And the very unfair thing is that Mima can't appeal to both audiences at the same time. It doesn't matter if she veers between a girly image or a mature image, people will still only view her as one thing and criticise her for the other. Like I said with Billy Eilish, people criticised her for wearing baggy clothes as a teenager. But there were also people who admired the fact that she only wore baggy clothes. Then in that shoot where she wore lingerie, those who admired her for her wearing baggy clothes and remaining, in their opinion, modest, began to hate her. And those, for years, who had wanted her to show more of her body off, started to like her. It's just so weird, like you just can't seem to win. it. But the thing about Mania is because he's a fan, he believes he's entitled to decide how she acts and how she portrays herself now while this is a symptom of controlling partners in a relationship it to an extent reflects how certain fans of celebrities today feel that they own them or that they're owed something in return for their loyalty this is called stan culture now i can't say that i'm too familiar with it outside of memes because i'm not on stan twitter um don't run a stan account for anything don't know anyone in real life who does either though okay i know one girl who edits one direction but I, I won't reveal who or yeah but anyways um to explain what a stan is to those of you who don't know though i see most of you do it is someone who's considered to be a major fan of celebrity but to an obsessive degree now i want to mention most people use stan in like an affectionate way. Like, I could say, I don't know, I'm a Lana Del Rey stan, for example. It doesn't mean I'm going to start stalking her. But if you look at the root of the word, it's burrowed in being obsessed with someone. The shorter version of this is you could just listen to Stan by Eminem, which is where it came from. But I hope that summary helped a bit. In the past 10 years or so, with the rise of social media, we have begun to see this growing degree to where a minority of fans feel celebrities should cater to their wishes due to their loyalty as fans. They want celebrities to act or behave a certain way. There is a lot of times that male celebrities such as Chris Evans or Robert Pattinson, that when they start to date someone, a certain subsection of their fans are going to be like, no, she's not good enough for you. And they begin to harass her online while demanding their chosen celebrity to break up with their partner. I think a big example of this is F. K. Twigs, who dated Robert Pattinson for a few years. She's spoken a lot about the racial abuse that she received from his fans because they wanted to protect Rob from her. They didn't think that she was good enough for him. Even though, if you know who F. K. Twigs is, she is one of the most talented people ever. Her music is class and she seems to have mastered every skill on the planet. So I don't know why she would not be the perfect partner for anyone. But basically what we're seeing is this new culture where fans want celebrities to reflect their opinions and their views. And if a celebrity steps out of this image, then it doesn't match the perfect idol that they see them as. Kit Connor was basically bullied off the internet because of queer baiting claims. He basically held hands with a woman after playing a very popular boy character in the show Heartstopper. Now, Kit later made a statement after I don't know if it was after he left social media. I think he might have shut down Twitter or something, where he basically had to say that he was bi because fans wouldn't stop harassing him over his sexuality. It's really messed up because this force coming out was the result of fans refusing to believe that the avatar that that they had created in their heads may be different from the actual person. Fans feel that celebrities have to cater to their whims in return for their loyalty. And Mimani as a character really reflects this because he begins to hate Mima for not preserving the image that he cares about when she steps away from it he grows angry at her feeling betrayed that why would a woman who had previously been acting so innocent suddenly turn out to be a very sexual being and even though in the film this sexuality probably does come from pressure of the executives as I mentioned earlier at the same time if Mima had chosen to express herself this way herself me mania still would have been disgusted by her i would have wanted her to return to before like i find stan culture very interesting and i find it very strange as well because ultimately i think the internet is just basically not real everything that is shared online is planned it's edited it's not a reflection of the person really like it might be to a small extent but no one knows celebrities except family and friends in their real life and i feel like even in real life It's only people very, very close to you who understand who you actually are. So, like, how are images in a magazine or them doing interviews or them playing a character meant to give full insight in who they actually are as people? That's why stan culture is so toxic. These people feel celebrities are indebted to them. They have to behave a certain way, that they have to keep a certain personality. And if they step out of that, the stans will begin to hate them, even though it's possible that this persona never existed to begin with. I think Mimania's entitlement to Mima reflects Stan's entitlement today. There is one scene in the film that is very creepy, and I want to make a disclaimer that I didn't come up with this, actually. Um, I saw it in a YouTube video by a creator called Super Wolf, and it's actually how I came across Perfect Blue, I think a year or two back. But anyways, in the film, at one stage, Mima sent fan mail, which turns out to contain some sort of explosive device. Luckily, someone else opens it up, and though they're injured, they're not hurt. But a year before the film came out in 1997, the Icelandic singer Bjork was mailed a sulfuric acid bomb. The man who sent it was named Ricardo Lopez, and he specifically wanted the bomb to either kill her or to scare her features he had formed an obsession with Bjork through the internet and he fantasized about being with her romantically but not sexually which I think once again chose the Madonna horror complex that like he could see her in a romantic way but not a sexual way because apparently love is not for women who have sex basically when he discovered Bjork was dating a black musician named Goldie this completely disrupted the image of Bjork he had and he plotted to kill her with this bomb to punish her This bomb wasn't intercepted, but it communicates how Ricardo felt he had this right to Bjork. He never met her, but he considered only himself to be worthy enough to love her. And once her actions didn't align with this perception that he had of her, he felt betrayed. Even though Bjork didn't know him, had no idea he existed and was just living her life. This man basically felt like that she had deliberately gone out of her way to offend him by choosing to date someone else. I'm not going to lie, this is very heavy stuff. Um, It's interesting, but it's all very weird, to be fair. Now, I don't know if the parallels between that and Perfect Blue are intentional, but without a doubt, the film captures better than any media how fans try to control the image of celebrity, despite them being a real person behind the role. Mimania basically feels that he is entitled to how Mima acts, that he wants her to keep this girly, innocent image, And when she pursues a more sexual one, she has deliberately done something to hurt him, that she does not have the right to change who she is as a person or how she feels about things. Like, it's very scary, but it is reflective of this very, very small minority. I know most stans on Twitter who refer to themselves as stans are harmless, but this parasocial, insidious culture somehow gets stans to think that they're really involved in these celebrities' lives when they don't know them at all. That is the reason that Perfect Blue is such an amazing film... ...besides capturing the realities and mental health of fans... ...of the confining roles that women are forced into in the film industry... ...of how women are criticised for whatever way they change their image... ...be it non-sexual or sexual... ...it just was ahead of its time. Like I don't think 20 years ago you could have predicted stan culture... ...but Perfect Blue did. Like There are a million other things I could discuss in this film... Um, such as identity and mental illness, but I won't go into it today. I, I think I spoke very little about the film, actually. But however, though I mentioned earlier, Perfect Blue never worked its way to the mainstream, It's strongly suspected that it did end up in the mainstream through inspiration, though, to be honest, some people are going to call it theft, and they might not be wrong. <laughs> so Darren Aronofsky, who is the director of Black Swan, and The Whale was said to have bought the American rights for Perfect Blue, which meant that he could remake the film in English live-action or whatever. Now, this is actually done with a lot of films, particularly foreign-language films where Americans basically remake it um, for an English-speaking audience. But anyways, it was said that he bought the rights so he could use identical scenes in his Oscar-nominated film, Requiem for a Dream. Now, it turns out a deal never went through. And though some sources said that Satoshi Khan wasn't too bothered about it, he did mention the similarities between the films and the lack of credit he received for it. And this is very valid because there is a scene in Requiem for a Dream, which is identical to Perfect Blue. It has Mima, she's in the bathtub, holding her head underwater, then she begins to scream. There is an exact same scene of that in Requiem for a Dream with Jennifer Connelly. But he said that was an homage to the film, so he acknowledged that. But people kind of make a bigger debate about the film Black Swan because many consider Black Swan to be a rip-off of Perfect Blue. They both deal with two women who start the film almost childlike before maturing throughout the film. They both have vision of their doubles who are quite evil and tell them that they're not meant to be there. I think the most damning evidence is that there's a lot of of shots that are near-identical to each other in both films. There's one where they see their double on the train... Another one where the pictures in the characters' room start talking to them and start taunting them. I won't spoil it all, but there is a solid seven-minute YouTube video by a creator named Eferin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing their name properly, who basically compares the two films. It's in Spanish, but there's English subtitles. Now, personally, having seen both, and having really liked both, I think they both have very different stories, and they are two very separate films. But having looked over the evidence, and knowing that Aronofsky admired so much of Satoshi Kon's work and the fact that he did acknowledge Perfect Blue was inspiration in his other film I think I do believe now that elements of Perfect Blue were copied and appeared in Black Swan but more so the shots than the actual story because I think those are quite different Um, I think what offends people the most is he says that there is no connection between the two I think there definitely is a connection between the two And I'd say if he probably said, oh yeah, sure, like it inspired me or whatever, people will be a lot more forgiving. But that's the big debate. A lot of people think Black Swan basically got the credit that Perfect Blue deserved 15 years earlier. I think like the most positive way of looking at it is that it's nice that an anime film like that has had such an impact on so many directors and that its influence was so grand that it worked its way into a film that a lot of people have seen. Because, I know Black Swan is quite popular. But it's just such an impressive film on so many levels. It's rare to get a film which can discuss fans so accurately that it literally predicted the future 20 years beforehand. That stan culture has become so prevalent in the media we see today. Having said that, I don't think I'd watch it again because it is quite a harrowing film. It's a film for me which is more enjoyable to discuss than to view. But that's just personally because I don't really like re-watching films that are quite heavy. But I'm very glad I saw it and I'm very glad that I can read all the different discussions and watch all the YouTube videos telling me the same thing ten times. Satoshi Kon would go on to die of cancer rather young. I think he was 47 when he passed away and he only ever made four films as his kind of directing talent was discovered late. Now he has made a big impact on the anime industry in Japan and... Like I said, his inspiration continued into mainstream films. Now, actually people do consider Inception by Christopher Nolan to be a ripoff of another of Satoshi Khan's film called Paprika. Christopher Nolan has never addressed these claims, but apparently it is meant to be a ripoff. Have not seen it, so I can't say I do love Inception though, but I'm interested to see if that's true as well. It just really shows Satoshi Khan's impact. It's amazing to see a film predict the future and like kind of the possession that some men feel that they have over women or the possession that some fans feel they have over celebrities despite not knowing them and despite these people being individuals and having their own agency and making their own choices but yeah so that is an obscure recommendation but I hope you if you see it that you enjoy it and you understand how reflective it is of today's film industry anyways that wraps us up for this episode this week Thank you very much for listening and I hope you all had a great week. I do actually have a very big guest coming up. I think my biggest guest I've had so far that I will be interviewing next week. But since the episode probably won't come out until like, probably won't come out until like the 6th or 7th of July. Not sure about my dates. I will let you know next week who it is. Thanks so much for listening. Have a fantastic week and I hope I did not scare you with this film. Okay, thanks so much. Bye.